Welcome to Physics Alive! I'm Brad Moser, and I want to help fellow educators spark new life into the physics classroom. Each episode, I'll draw inspiration from the teachers, researchers, students, and professionals who explore innovative learning, motivate new curricula, apply physics in their careers, and encourage an inclusive and healthy classroom environment. Good Physics Day, everyone! Well, here it is, almost May here in 2021, and it's been a while since my last episode, uh, almost, it's been over a month since my last recorded episode, and it feels good to be back in front of the microphone again, uh, to be thinking about recording a new episode of Physics Alive. You know, this is, uh, this is a meaningful show for me. It's a way for me to be exploring the world of physics education and, and the broader education world and to be sharing what I'm finding, to share the things that I've, I've learned over time already and to share the, the things I'm learning about now. So, yeah, it feels good to be back in front of the microphone. And I want to jump into a topic that's been on my mind recently. Uh, but really, when I think about it, it's a topic that's been on my mind for many years now. A few weeks ago, I was putting together a presentation that talked about how to help students learn quantitative subjects. And this presentation was digging into a number of elements, um, what it is that the, a faculty member can do, how it is that peer tutoring can help interact with students. And it was looking at, yeah, I was looking at the science behind how students learn, but it was also looking into mindset. And one of the big ideas that came across was that, I mean, mindset is so important in, in studying many different subjects, but it definitely jumps out in mathematics, anything quantitative. There's this, there's this notion that, that there are just some people that can't do math. And, and unfortunately, this seems to be a, a large percentage of folks who, who have this sense, who have this feeling. And I'll get into that a, a little bit later in this episode. But it definitely brought up a lot of emotion in me because although here I, I have gone out and I've gotten a PhD in physics, I still have some tough feelings around math. There are times where I feel like I am holding my own and then there are times where I really feel like I struggle with certain ideas. So this, this topic really drew me in, this idea of thinking about math shame and math anxiety. And yeah, I started looking into this this topic through through interest, through experiences of my own, and I felt like this would be a good episode, something to share with everyone. So I want to share with you some of my experiences and then kind of broaden from there. What came up in me from this was a flash of many, what I'm going to call shaming moments in my past, math shaming probably going back to the earliest, it's those math races that you would have at the blackboard at elementary school. I don't know if you had those uh, when you were a kid or if it's something that's still going on now. I kind of hope it does not, but you know, there would be two lines of kids that would line up at the board and then they would have to go up and they would have to solve a math problem. And then when that person gets it, they go to the back of the line and the next person comes up and it's this race. And I've never considered myself a fast mathematician. I, I take my time to work through questions. And, and so that I had anxiety with that. I remember when I took calculus as a senior in high school, 
those first couple of weeks were so frustrating trying to learn the initial rules. I remember this was the, the one and only book I've thrown across the living room. I remember chucking it. I remember taking this calculus book and throwing it across the room onto the couch because I was so frustrated trying to understand that. A couple of weeks later, you start to learn some of the shortcut rules and you don't have to use the definition for a derivative now in this painstaking way anymore. And I didn't launch the book anymore that semester, but it was certainly a very challenging topic. I think the most vivid experiences though are actually from graduate school, um, particularly in, in my master's program. There were there were two particular incidents. I was taking an electricity and magnetism course, and I, I was trying to wrap my head around a particular example, and I met with the, the faculty member in their office to go through some, some ideas. And it was a problem where we had to identify that the electric field inside a conductor is always zero. And it just hadn't dawned on me. I've probably, I'd probably answered that question correctly on exams as an undergraduate. And yet here I am in, in this office and, and that piece just isn't clicking. And I said, and, and the professor asked something and I said, well, electric field zero, right? And I remember he said, it's like, you damn well better know that. Let's just say I didn't go back to office hours again. Then there was a, a mathematical methods of physics class. And this was, I think this is by far the most challenging course I've had in, in ever, <laughs> in my graduate school career, but ever. And we were working on group theory, which is, it's a topic I should have really enjoyed. I, I've always had an innate interest in particle physics. I thought about studying, going into studying it, but I, I, I didn't go that direction for, for reasons that will maybe come, become evident within this episode. Actually, there was a, there was a cohort of us, um, four American students who were all admitted the the same year, um, amongst many other students. And and in graduate school in physics, something kind of amazing happens. I I, I wonder if the experience of many undergraduate American students is that they are surrounded by many students who look and act like them, and this changes. In graduate school, all of a sudden, now there is this international community. There are students coming from across the globe to these physics graduate programs. And it is, frankly, a very amazing experience. You begin to interact with this uh, diverse set of students, of, of colleagues, of new peers that, that you hadn't gotten to in the past. And you learn so much from them and you form these new friendships. But maybe something that the four of us American students who were admitted that year hadn't expected was the level of preparedness that these students from other countries had experienced in their upbringing. I don't claim to know what that preparation looks like, but I can see from the evidence around me that they were very prepared for these classes. And then the graduate classes were, were taught at a level, uh, I think with that preparation, in mind. And, and here I came in with maybe not the same preparation and, and my, my fellow American students in my cohort also, I think, felt a little bit behind, like we weren't prepared enough for the level at which these graduate courses were being offered. So this was a new situation for us. 
anyway, so we're, we're in this, this group theory class and all four of us are struggling to get this idea. And we ask some kind of question. I don't remember what the question is, but the, the professor says, my third graders, my, my kids, my third grade children do group theory problems in the backseat on road trips. Well, you can just imagine what, what this sparked. I still remember my, <laughs> my friend, David, he, he proceeded to submit the next homework assignment in crayon uh, in order to make a point uh, about, this, about this idea of third graders doing it. So <laughs> it was a long homework assignment and crayons are very thick. And so he used a lot of pages and I just, I thought this was hysterical, but it was certainly, it, it was just sort of another, another calling card uh, to, to this topic that I'm looking at here. There was just so many times I was hitting the wall and was finding it was just so hard to grasp and master some of these these ideas in in graduate physics, and it was a it was a slow realization that you know my my hope to be a theoretical physicist I I didn't think was going to be possible because all the work that I was pouring into working on these problems to reading the text to practicing practicing. Just, the ideas just were not clicking. I could not get many of these mathematical ideas at this advanced level. And I kind of felt like if, if I'm going to go that direction, it's like I need to be able to do that. You know, at this point in my career, I know that's that's not a true statement. Uh, I I would have been able to to carve my own niche in theory without necessarily having to have mastered all of the, the great and hardest mathematical identities. Um, but I, that, that mindset that I had at the time certainly limited the direction that I went. Then it turns out I fell in love with doing teaching and, and I wanted to go that direction. I found that to be very interesting, very rewarding, so much to look into, so much research in that area. Um, so that's the direction I went. Totally happy with that. But if I could go back and I don't know, what, what would I do differently if I went back? Where are we now? So I'm at Hamilton College uh, teaching in the physics department. And and I have some current anxiety. I'll have to say that this is this is a very selective school. And the criteria that goes into selecting the students that can attend this institution, I would imagine are the same criteria that are being applied to the faculty members that they hire. So what I can see around me is a very talented, very accomplished set of individuals. There are wonderful people here. They are very welcoming and I can't help sometime but feel like I'm an I'm a total imposter here. And I find myself anxious about that actually. That that I'm in a I'm in a lab instructor role. I'm not in a tenure faculty line and and I feel nobody has pro has projected this onto myself except for myself. I'm the one projecting this onto myself that I'm not good enough. So I'm anxious about things that I'm doing in the classroom when I'm working with these faculty members. I'm anxious about, it's like, oh, they want to do coding in this class and I haven't been great with, with coding. I'm feeling better about it thanks to my interview with, uh, with Brian Lane. But I, I, f I felt anxious about coding and, and so I have this fixed mindset that I can't do that. And then there was, there was talk that I might get involved with the advanced lab course. And I felt anxious about that. I felt anxious that I, I can't do that. Uh, I sure I got uh, 
a PhD in experimental physics, but it's like, I feel like I'm not good at it. So he, here I am projecting out into the world that I'm not good at this. And therefore I can't teach a class like that. And, uh, to his credit, one of one of my colleagues, you know, really, you know, you know, sat down with me and talked to me and said, "No, I absolutely believe that you would be great teaching this course. You have a lot of valuable experiences. You know, there's this and that, and so, uh, so that, you know, that's a piece that I can overcome. And and uh, you know, thank you, thank you, Gordon Jones, for having that conversation with me. It was it was very valuable. You helped kind of boost my spirits there. But still, there's this anxiousness that was in there. Okay, I'm kind of going on and on about this, and. And I've decided I want to make myself vulnerable in this episode to, to get to a really deep, important idea that I think is incredibly pervasive in, in our environment, in our country, certainly. But I, I, imagine it, I imagine it must be around the world. I'll be curious to, for, for folks that I know who listen in other countries if this experience is out there. This experience of, of math shame, of math anxiety. I mean, here I am with a PhD in physics, and I'm still feeling shame and anxiety about my ability to do math, about my ability to approach these complex topics. So my experience is that many people feel significant shame about their abilities to do math. I think this is widespread from individuals who struggle to understand the so-called, quote, simple mathematics, to those who are struggling to understand complex mathematics, such as, let's say, Green's theorem or contour integrals. Things from that math methods class that, that uh, I, I never quite was able to grasp. How does this show up in our world? Well, it shows up in phrases such as, I'm not good at math. This is, this is a complex, this is a badge of honor it seems that that people wear and i've read i've read quite a bit about this over the years and it, it's a statement it, it's akin to um well what what i've read is that uh, many people make the comparison they say nobody says i'm not good at reading yet there are going to be many different levels of reading some people can read quickly some people read slowly some people remember everything that they read they have a trapdoor of a memory and other people have to read things over and over and over again to uh, to get it. But nobody's really publicly going out and and having this this badge that they wear that says I'm not good at reading. I mean, maybe it happens, but certainly not to the level of I'm not good at math. And and this then kind of shows up now in the world as this that math is an immutable trait. It's something that you either have or you don't have. And that's it. There's, if you don't have it, there's kind of just no hope for you and you're just, you're just giving up. So now it becomes this mindset of, I can't do this and I'm not going to be able to do it. So I won't even try. This, this shows up um, actually quite often. So if you are, I'm sure many of, of my listeners are, are physics teachers. And I'll be curious if you hear this as often as I do, but anytime somebody asks what I do for work, I'll say, oh, I teach physics. And Almost every time I say something, I, I say that, the response I get back is something on the order of, oh, you must be smart, or, ooh, I wasn't very good at that, at that, or, ooh, that was really interesting in high school. I occasionally get that, but usually it's, oh, you must be smart. And here I am with my own math anxiety thinking, nope, nope, that's not true. There are a whole lot of other smarter uh, physicists out there than I am. 
which is just the whole statement that I should be getting rid of, smarter physicists. I mean, what, what do we mean by that? It's like we all have our different skills. We have our different strengths. You know, I would say that, that my strength in physics education is, is at a different skill level than, uh, than many folks I have worked with in the past. Uh, whereas the things that they specialize in, of course, they are also going to have much more experience and skill at than I'm going to have. For this episode, I decided to kind of scan around uh, the internet just so that I'm not just talking off the cuff here, but, you know, get a few insights from other folks in this field. And, and what I see is that research into math, shame, and anxiety is has been studied for quite some time. So there's a lot of information out there, and I, I think it could be interesting to get somebody on the, the show about this. But today's episode is more about giving voice to this particular topic rather than going and looking for the peer-reviewed research that is associated with it. Although the first article that I want to talk about uh, is research uh, or is based on research that is done by a cognitive science researcher. So there's an article I found called Americans Need to Get Over Their Fear of Math. And this article is written by Sion Bailak, who is the president of Bernard College. Uh, but she has also done a lot of research throughout her career. And a few of the numbers she has reported is 93% of Americans report experiencing some level of math anxiety. You heard that number, right? 93% of Americans report this. One in four college students report moderate or high levels of math anxiety. And yeah, so her, her research is really looking into this to see what's going on. And she argues that if, if Americans already compete for STEM jobs as we move into the future here, then it's imperative to help address this math anxiety. So as the president of a college, she's very concerned about what students are going to be doing after graduation, that they're going to experience success, that they're going to be getting the, the best jobs. And she sees that this this anxiety, this shame that is experienced in math is is going to be is going to be holding people back, uh, and that there are so many people who could be very successful in these careers if they would just be able to identify this anxiety and be able to overcome it. Uh, another article that I found by Sarah Sparks uh, was called "The Myth Fueling Math Anxiety," and. Some of the things she writes about are that those with math anxiety are less likely to practice math, and then confidence and skill erode over time. And she says that children aren't born fearing math. So the, the studies that, that she has looked into find that this anxiety rises as they confront more challenging content, as they confront other people's negative attitudes as they're growing up, and the social stereotypes of who should be good at math and who shouldn't be good at math. They begin to buy into these ideas, they hear these negative attitudes, and then that's what they grow up experiencing themselves. And lastly, she points out that there is this fixed academic mindset, that there is this belief that math skill is innate and cannot be improved through effort, that there's the haves and the have-nots in math. I, I do believe that every one of us has different gifts. I absolutely believe that there are some people that come into this world with a a mind that is wired to, to more easily more easily get mathematical ideas. 
I've often I've often joked that um, the folks who are really good at mathematics, I, I feel like there there must be there must be some wires in the brain that I, I just imagine somebody at a, at a switchboard like pulling a few wires out of uh, social awareness and uh, yeah skill and social settings and then plugging those into the, the math sensors instead because it certainly would seem like uh, those folks who are stronger at mathematical skills well we we're not quite as good in the social situations now this of course isn't true across the board but it's certainly a stereotype that, that plays out quite often so I, I do believe there there are definitely everybody has different skills different gifts so they come into this world with a proclivity to do to do the to do art to make music uh, to be able to do math I mean I, I was sitting and writing my own mathematics as an elementary school child I, I would fill up uh, a little notebook that I had with pretend math I can't imagine that most other kids do that I, I wasn't thinking about am I good at math or am I not good at math you know I was just those were the sort of things that came through me so I I mean I feel like we must be coming into this world with certain things that interest us and certain things that we are are stronger at but but what Sarah is is pointing out is that this fixed mindset is causing people that maybe they feel like they are more challenged, they're, they're finding it more challenging to do math, and then they'll just give up right away. So this is where there is a mindset that we can work on, that there can be improvement, that, okay, yes, just because I am not exceptionally gifted at math doesn't mean I can't make great progress and figure out a lot of problem solving. So some of the problem is when we demote math to memorizing, how to use lists of equations and practice without application, and to perform rapidly and with a so-called correct method, then students compete and they judge themselves against how others are viewing them. They're judging themselves against how much they can memorize, uh, how much, how rapid, how rapidly they can perform calculations, how well they can do the correct method that an instructor is looking for. So, so that I believe is definitely something that we can work on in educational institutions that uh, we, we recognize there are so many paths to problem solving that it doesn't need to be done rapidly, that there is a deliberation that can occur. And then if students have a fixed mindset, then they will fear making mistakes. And those mistakes will enforce the I'm not good at math narrative. So those are some of the ideas that uh, the Sarah, wrote, Sarah Sparks wrote about in, in her little article. The last resource that I want to mention today is the, some work and writing that I've seen from Angela Veerling Klassen. And she has put up a, a website called Liberation Math. And she's written quite a bit on math shame. And she's given a number of presentations that, that she has available to look at. And her work and her thoughts really resonate with me. They, they go beyond just an, an, an analytical thinking about this shame and anxiety. And, and really starts looking into the heart of it. How can we disrupt shame in mathematics? How can we, how can we learn to pull away from that and develop a new narrative? And some of the ideas that she talks about are, well, first of all, just learning to recognize shame. We need to be able to see it. We need to be able to identify it. When is it there in front of us? I think none of us are really 
trained to to see that, to recognize what that looks like. But I believe it's all around us. And, and just hearing these statements such as, I'm not a math person, I'm not good at math. I mean, those are the explicit ones, but I, I think... I think we in physics teaching can often see fear in students and hesitancy and can, uh, and can see a fixed mindset. So we need to learn to recognize this shame, this, this anxiety. And then we have to be vulnerable. We have to be vulnerable ourselves to what we have struggled with in the past and be able to share our journey with students. If we're able to express our worries and our embarrassments and the shame that we've felt, then we'll begin to create a, a safe space and an, and an opportunity for for students to open us open up and be able to share with us what they're feeling as well. So once we've recognized shame and anxiety in our lives and we, we've opened ourselves to being vulnerable about it, then we can begin to focus on mindset. And Angela actually writes that we should be exploring mindset. We don't want to make moral judgments around mindsets. Uh, there's certainly a lot of talk about growth mindset versus fixed mindset, but there's not necessarily wrong and right in the world. There are advantages to fixed mindsets at times as well. But oftentimes with math anxiety, we can, if we focus more on a growth mindset, if we think more about what what can I do differently? How can I think differently? So exploring that mindset. What is the mindset that that we ourselves typically have when we approach something new, when we approach a new mathematical problem? Uh, what are the mindsets that our students approach problems with? These are the things that we can begin to explore and find out, well, what's happening? And maybe where are some places that that is holding us back? And then finally, we need to be aware of the emotions that are around mathematical problem solving. Emotions such as frustration, fear, shame, pride, anger, and, and many more. We'll look for these in ourselves and look for these in, uh, as educators in our students. Where do we see those? We certainly see frustration. I'm sure we see fear. We can see pride when when they are successful in what they do. We can see anger when they're not able to get things right. And they start to to blame and say, well, this is your fault for the way you're doing it. You're not teaching me right. And, and so on. These stories can just go on and on. So we need to be aware of those emotions. And that's going to help cycle us back to, to learning to recognize shame. So... I hope I've introduced some valuable ideas in this episode. It's it's really a topic that has it has been on my mind throughout the semester ever since I heard about the case of student A and student B, and found found these ideas rising up in me, uh, feeling my own frustrations and anxiety and shame in my life over certain subjects and certainly over over math, and so I decided I wanted to be vulnerable with everybody in this space to share what my story has been, what I have experienced and to see if these ideas resonate with you, to see if you can see yourself, uh, even if not in math, in, in other parts of life, where, where do you feel shame? Where do you feel like you are not enough? Where do you feel like you don't stack up against somebody else uh, or the rest of the world? And, and how is that mindset 
serving you? How can we bring ourselves out of that? How can we recognize when we fall into that space uh, to to recognize those emotions, to to value them, to give them space, and then to see where are they not necessarily serving us, and and how can we change that? How can we shift our mindset? And and coming back to thinking about us as educators in physics and in math, this this shame message is unconsciously passed on from peers and from faculty. I mean, I have had the experience of of being shamed by faculty. Again, I don't think they were conscious of it. They they had their own level of expertise with the subject and they felt a frustration that a student of theirs was not able to gain from them the same knowledge that they had themselves. And and I think we've all felt those frustrations and we have to be so careful that we are not propagating this this message of shame. So how can peers, peer students, how can tutors, how can instructors respond to someone who can't perform a mathematical function that we are falsely believing that that student should know how to do? We think they should be able to do it, but clearly they can't. And and that there is more growth that needs to happen, that there is more understanding, that pieces haven't come together. And that's okay. That's what learning is. That's what it's all about. And and everybody learns different topics at different speeds. And it's okay. And we have to be, we have to make space for that and and be careful with our responses. I know it is it's such a challenging time in the world right now. It's an amazing time in the world that uh, you know, on on one hand, I you know, I hear so much about having to be PC, that we can't just talk about things the way we used to. And and I feel like I can fall on both sides of the coin of that. And sometimes where it's like, oh, gee, why can't I just, just say that thing? But but I get it. I'm beginning to recognize more and more how our language matters so much that that we have been unguarded with our words over the, the course of centuries. And shame and anxiety and stereotypes and all of that have built up because of our carelessness with with language well for many reasons but i think our carelessness with language has not helped matters and i think we are now beginning to see as a society that that language matters the way we talk about things matter so in this space of learning math and physics and chemistry and anything quantitative anything where we're doing problem solving how can we respond with more sensitivity because our response is crucial we will either continue to unconsciously propagate shame or we can begin to undo generations of math shaming i certainly don't proclaim to know how to go about doing this but i do want to be saying out loud that it is something that I, I truly care about, that I want to begin to heal my own anxieties that, we, that I feel. And I really want to be sensitive to what students are experiencing in their lives right now. I feel like anxiety is just so high with students, with, with everybody in general. Certainly, this whole COVID situation has led to a lot of anxiety 
and I'm sure it helps to bring out something like a math anxiety as well. So yeah, I really want to learn to be more sensitive to this and to be more skilled as I respond to my students. You know, I think one of the most challenging things that we teachers often face is when a student gives a so-called incorrect answer. How do we respond? What do we put out into this space? How can we encourage them to continue answering rather than shutting them down from whatever, um, from wanting to ever participate again? And it's in that space. Those are the spaces where we can create the biggest change. So I'd love to hear from you about your stories, about if you've experienced similar things in your life, and that if you've found resources that you think are valuable here, if you've found articles that, that you think address this, that you could share with me, uh, I'd love to take a look at them. I'd love to, to read them, to learn more. These are topics, um, th- this is particularly a topic that I, I really care about. And yeah, thank you for listening to another episode of Physics Alive. As always, I encourage you to uh, go ahead and subscribe to the podcast if you haven't already so that you can see new episodes when they first come live. Uh, please check out the website, physicsalive.com. You can go right to the show notes for this episode, either by scrolling down on your, your podcast server or by going to physicsalive.com slash shame, and you'll go right to the show notes page for that. There's not going to be a whole lot there, at least at the moment, just a couple of the articles that I mentioned. You can check those out. Um, but if there are other resources that are shared with me by my listeners, I would um, absolutely love to post those there. Thanks again for listening in, and I hope you've been inspired. Please join me again next time. Until then, I wish you the vulnerability that encourages exploration and the exploration that leads to growth. Be well.